We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 9. We're actually covering an entire chapter's worth of material this morning, which we wouldn't usually do, but it's sort of one coherent story. So we're going for it. Uh, For context, as we uh, step into chapter 9 of the Gospel account written by John, There is loads of tension in the air. Jesus is still in Jerusalem at the risk of his own life. He is still sharing truth and performing signs are what we would call miracles for the Jewish nation. Uh, But there's lots of tension in the background that's brewing. Jesus has been offending people left and right along the way, and he's not done. This is chapter 9, starting in verse 1 says this, it says, as he went along, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, No, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud. He doesn't say how. Made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed, then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this, the, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answer, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. 
That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was born blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this event, for these words, for uh, this picture that we get of you at work, full of the Spirit, on behalf of the Father, uh, revealing yourself to the world. And Lord, I pray that as we unpack these verses this morning, that we would find ourselves uh, right here in the, in the mix in this story, that we would uh, find ourselves living your story in our time, in our place, in our context. Uh, Lord, lo- don't let the two be sort of divorced or divided in our minds, but would we be uh, swept up into the biblical narrative this morning as we contemplate uh, what this meant then and what it means for us today. We pray these things in the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus walks through the streets of Jerusalem, he notices somebody that nobody else notices. A man born blind begging on the side of the road. Most people walk by, some drop money, but even the ones that do don't look into his eyes. Few notice that he's here, and yet he's been there for years, hidden in plain sight, begging for money in order to stay alive. But as Jesus comes through, likely on his way to do something we would consider very important, he stops and he sees this man. He notices the man that nobody else will notice. And he, t- he pulls his disciples aside and he turns the attention of his disciples toward this man. And as all of them as a group tor- turn their attention toward this man and begin to interact with him, the disciples immediately, uh, rather than offering practical help, hey, we've got some money, Judas, where's the purse? You know, uh, rather than offering to pray for him, instead they turn the event into a theological discussion. And the backdrop for that is that the worldview that they've inherited says, in its simplest form, that sin, uh, sorry, sickness is a result of sin. So if you're sick, it means there's some sort of underlying sin that has given birth or contributed to that. 
But the catch in this story is that the man has been blind since birth. And, and that kind of throws them off a little bit. Because as they try to view him through that lens and through that worldview, they're not really sure what to make of him. Okay, you were born blind at birth. Does that mean that you sinned in the womb? Can you sin in the womb? What, was it his sin that led to this? Is that even possible? Oh, perhaps it was the sin of his parents that was committed while he was in the womb. And then he was born bearing the marks of their sin. Now he has to pay the price. But Jesus sidesteps the entire conversation. He says, no, it actually wasn't his sin nor the sin of his parents. Instead, what's happened here has set the scene for the work of God to be displayed. In other words, stop thinking about that. Stop focusing on the sin and start thinking about the work that God wants to do right now in addressing this man that's been born blind. But the work that God goes on to do in this moment is a bit odd. In fact, if you were to tell the disciples in this moment, hey, Jesus is about to heal this man. I promise you it's about to happen. He's going to heal this blind man. How do you think he's going to do it? Give me your best guess. Or even your top three guesses. What do you think he's going to do? Nobody would have anticipated what Jesus does next. He makes mud using his saliva and then rubs it on the man's eyes, which is weird. And then he tells the blind man, who now has mud caked over his eyes, hey, don't touch it. Don't wash it off yet. I want you to go. He's blind, remember? I want you to find your way through the crowded city of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam. Don't touch it or wash it off till you get there. And, and I imagine his disciples sort of giving each other quizzical looks behind his back. Like, is, is he serious? Like, not only was that moment a little bit weird, but now you're sending the blind man alone to grope his way through the city with mud caked on his eyes to find this specific pool. Okay, I guess we'll just go back to what we were doing. Good luck finding the pool. And they send him on his way. But amazingly, the man obeys in faith and is healed. And almost immediately, he's healed and people start to take notice. It causes a stir within this section of the city. And immediately, word gets out and the religious leaders pounce on him and want to investigate the healing. Uh, first off, the healing came from Jesus and they don't like Jesus. But second off, the healing took place on the Sabbath. And over time, the religious leadership, as a matter of tradition, had made rules, man-made rules, to govern the Sabbath. And one of the things that they had said is on the Sabbath day, you're not allowed to heal someone or be healed. That counts as work. You're not allowed to do that. And so by healing on the Sabbath, uh, Jesus has, has highlighted these sort of man-made rules. He's publicly undermining their authority. It acts as a critique of the Pharisees, who they are and the way that they're ruling. God never said don't heal on the Sabbath, but they did. And now there's this conflict 
based on what's happening. And so the whole thing kind of explodes. The blind man is dragged before, before the religious leadership. He tells them plainly what has happened. He says, hey, it's really not complicated. Mud, eyes, healed. Okay, like that's how it happened. But the problem is that the religious leadership doesn't want to believe him. They don't want to believe that this event happened. And so they accuse the man of being a fake, which is hilarious. They say, no, the, the real blind man must still be blind. He's probably out there in hiding somewhere. We don't believe that you're him. His parents get dragged in to confirm, hey, is this in fact your son? Then they make him tell the story again. They still don't want to believe it, but they're stuck. If you can put yourself in their place, they're stuck in this moment. Because if they admit that Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath day, then it, it makes a really strong case that God is with Jesus and that Jesus is telling the truth. The problem is that they've already started with the, with the assumption that God is not with Jesus, that he's a rebellious underminer, that he is not the Messiah, and, and, and that therefore this, this couldn't have happened. They can't reconcile what has happened. And so they're stuck. How do they explain this to the people that they report to? What do they write down in, in their report? They don't know what to do. They start accusing Jesus of being a sinner. Uh, they invite the blind man multiple times to change his story. Hey, can we put you down on record as saying something different? No, I've already told you. It's very plain. It's not complicated. They even threaten to throw the blind man out of the synagogue, which doesn't mean much to us, but that's the community. That's the center of community and power. There is no other safety net in, in the ancient world. And so they're saying, we'll throw you out of, the, out of your community, out of this place. But the healed man stands his ground and he fearlessly proclaims the truth to those in power, telling them that God is with Jesus, that Jesus is doing the will of God, and that he himself would still be blind if Jesus wasn't telling the truth. And in the final line that we read this morning, it says, quote, they threw him out. To the outside, to the margins. And the reason that I find this passage so striking is that I think it describes the cultural moment that we're living in. You see, each one of us, I would argue, was like the blind man. Not born physically blind as this man was, but born spiritually blind. Unable to see or comprehend God unable to see or comprehend the truth of the gospel. And then Jesus came along, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you can say with confidence that, that he saw you. That even when you were blind and you couldn't see him, he noticed, he stopped, and he saw you. And, and if someone had been standing there when this happened in my life, uh, they might have been able to ask Jesus, hey, why is Matt spiritually blind? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? 
that made him this way. And I think Jesus could have said in that moment within my story, I don't know, forget about that. This, this isn't about sin. This is this, I've allowed this to happen so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. And, and then there was a moment in which I, we, each of us, was touched, was healed by Jesus when, when the, the eyes of our heart were opened up so that we could see him for who he was. And it happened a little bit different for each one of us. If we each had time to tell our stories and testimonies this morning, you'd notice they'd all be a little bit different. And in fact, if you go back and read the gospel accounts, if you read all the stories of the times when Jesus healed someone who was blind, they're actually all a little bit different. He never seems to do it the same way twice. And, and that's actually really encouraging for me that all of us who have had our eyes opened, it's probably been a little different for each of us, but it's happened to all of us and your story matters. Even though your story is looking different than my story and different than the story you read this morning, your story matters. We've all been given that spiritual sight by Jesus, but the result ultimately is the same. All of our stories then converge in this common place where we can say, my eyes have been opened. I can see Jesus now. I know it was him who's opened my eyes. Like the man in this story, I've been sort of commissioned and sent out. But as you're being sent out, just like the man in this story, you have to recognize that the cultural elite will not accept your testimony. Because we live in a culture of people who don't want God to be real. They don't want the gospel to be true. And so like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they actually start with the assumption that they are right and Jesus is wrong. They start with the verdict and then they go to build the trial. They begin to work backwards from that assumption. In fact, in the Western world, we intentionally set up entire worldviews that screen out reality so that we don't have to respond to God. We've done the same thing the Pharisees have done. We just have a different set of excuses. We've invented materialism and rationalism and existentialism and naturalism and relativism and postmodernism and probably some other isms that I forgot to mention. But if you dig into these worldviews, which form the bedrock of secular culture, you'll find that there's no meaningful evidence to support them, and a lot of them don't even make sense within themselves. So why are they so popular in the Western world? I would argue that we have run to these isms as a means of hiding from God. It's an emotionally driven thing, not intellectual. These are our modern 
ideological fig leaves that we attempt to hide behind. It's no different than the Pharisees. They were hiding behind their own man-made Sabbath regulations and claiming that perhaps Jesus is a sinner or perhaps the blind man isn't really the blind man. Whatever they can do to hide behind so that they don't actually have to face Jesus. So that they don't have to respond to him in real time. They're trying to screen out the possibility that Jesus might be Lord. It's no different today. We are so determined to keep the gospel at arm's length that we create these clever-sounding ideologies. Hey, if we all claim to be materialists, then we don't have to respond to God. We can collectively pretend that he doesn't exist. We can kick God and his followers out of the synagogue. That is to say, out of the public consciousness. And this is what the culture is attempting to do right now. Separate religion from the state. Separate religion from the university. Separate religion from the classroom. Separate religion from the public square. Separate religion from the very concept of truth. Anything to keep it out of sight and out of mind. Do you realize that someone within secularism invented the idea that your faith is a private affair? That was unheard of. There is not a culture in all of human history that has believed that, aside from the culture that you live in today. They invented that notion. Your faith is a private affair. And someone else within secularism arbitrarily decided that scientific truth is truth, but that anything that's unseen or spiritual cannot be true in the objective sense. That only counts as opinion. It's crazy. Again, no culture in history has ever believed that until today. Why is that? Where did those beliefs come from? Well, that's an attempt on a cultural level to keep Jesus and his followers silenced. Out of sight, out of mind. They've done exactly what the Pharisees did in this story. They've said, your evidence doesn't count. And the blind man's saying, why? Wait, why? Why doesn't my evidence count? This is my parents. This is me. These are people who have seen me. It's really me. I was really blind. I can really see. And they say, in, a, in, in essence, oh, well, it happened on the Sabbath. There was a violation of Sabbath law. Therefore, the whole thing gets thrown out. None of this counts. It's not real evidence. The case is thrown out of court and the blind, well, the healed beggar is thrown out as well. And it's no different today. Our culture arbitrarily says, hey, your evidence doesn't count. We say, wait, what? 
Why not? We've got really good evidence. We've we've got piles and piles of witnesses. What, What do you mean it doesn't count? They say the same thing. Nope, we don't like it. So it doesn't count. It violates the man-made rules of secular culture. Therefore, we don't have to listen. Oh, and by the way, anyone who insists on violating those rules that we've made and bringing Jesus into the public square will be at risk of being thrown out of the synagogue. To the margins to the outskirts. You either affirm our cultural vision and applaud what we tell you to applaud and celebrate what we tell you to celebrate or else. You will be labeled a bigot and an outcast. You are at risk of being thrown out with a healed beggar to the margins of society. You're at risk of losing the election or missing out on that promotion or getting fired from your job completely. You risk getting marginalized by peers or mocked by college professors or never accepted to that college in the first place. Why? Because we are a community of healed beggars in a culture of Pharisees. And they simply cannot or will not accept your evidence. They've invented a worldview that screens out the possibility, that keeps Jesus and the gospel out of the public square and makes them sound intelligent at the same time. So what are we to do? How do we respond to this? How do we, how do we walk through this? As, as the healed beggars of the 21st century, how will the Western church survive another century of post-Christian culture? Well, I'd argue that there's two things that we need to learn from the original healed beggar in order to be successful in our calling. And the first is this, we need to recognize and call out cultural bias. The blind beggar knew the bias of his culture. He knew the Pharisees, he knew their logic, he knew what they were doing and how they were attempting to screen out the evidence that was right in front of their eyes. And so he called out that bias and cut through that bias. He says, look, whether this man keeps the Sabbath laws or not, I don't know. Like, why are you hung up on that? That's not the real issue. Here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. And that you cannot ignore. And you know what? Your excuses are remarkable. Has anyone ever opened the eyes of the blind before? Could anyone do that if God were not with them? No. 
In a sense, he says, you can put your head in the sand if you want to, but I am laying out the evidence before you in an undeniable way that, that bypasses the bias and the traps that you're trying to set. 2,000 years later, it's a different cultural bias that we face because culture has changed and will continue to change. Today, the greatest bias we face is this, and I would call it uh, the, the public-private divide. This is the new bias of our culture, and it says this. It says, what you can measure physically and, in, and scientifically is public truth, which everyone is expected to accept. But the spiritual realm is a private matter. It's a matter of opinion. And, and some of us have had this drilled into us for so long that we can't even think in another way. And as you see it written down, it, it sounds sort of subtle. Like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound that bad. That sounds pretty reasonable. But in its effect, it is deadly. This is stifling to our witness in the world. This is how they silence the church and arrive at a public verdict before the trial has even been held. This is how Jesus and the Gospels are thrown out of the public square, out of the synagogue, because it violates the cultural rules that they've created. You can start engaging with one of the modern-day Pharisees, and sooner or later they say, Oh, oh, I see, that's a spiritual thing. You're talking about something spiritual. Oh, we won't even give you a verdict. Like, you, your case doesn't even make it into court. That's not even fit for trial. That doesn't count as truth. It's a private matter. It's a matter of opinion. Keep it to yourself. This is where we get the phrase, your truth is your truth which is such, mm, I'm going to use the word silly. That is such a silly idea. I am so sorry to tell you, but my truth is not my truth. That's not how truth works. Either what we believe is true, or it's not true. Either Jesus is back from the dead, or he's dead. Either the tomb is empty, or it's not empty. Either God created the universe, or he didn't create the universe. Either God opens my eyes, or he didn't. There, there, there is no gray. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. Your faith is not subjective. It is not a private matter. It is not a trivial matter. C.S. Lewis once famously said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, postmodern culture has said that exact 
thing. Your faith is moderately important. If it's good for you, it's good for you. If it's helpful for you, it's helpful for you. But keep it to yourself. Keep it out of the synagogue. Keep it out of the public square. Brothers and sisters, what you and I believe cannot be moderately important. It is either worthless or it's worth everything. It cannot be true for you and not true for others. That's not how truth works. If it's true, then it's important and it's true for everyone and it is fit for the public square, for the classroom, for the university, for the boardroom, for every form of government. It is fit for those things. But we have to overcome this cultural bias before the culture can hear our witness. Because we are the healed beggars being thrown out of court based on man-made rules. Well, he violated the Sabbath, so none of this matters. None of this counts. Doesn't matter what you say, our minds are already made up. In today's language, the modern-day Pharisees are saying, well, it's a spiritual matter. You violated the rules of our court. Spiritual matters don't count. Religion cannot be truth. It can only be opinion. Go home. And they drop the gavel. But if we don't understand that cultural bias and call out that cultural bias and speak into it in the years ahead, we will not be heard. Our, our voices as witnesses will fall on deaf ears. Nancy Piercy, who is one of the most brilliant followers of Jesus in America right now, says it this way. She says, oh, one slide back. She says, this public-private division explains why Christians have difficulty communicating in the public arena. It's crucial for us to realize that non-believers are constantly filtering what we say through a mental fact-value grid. By fact value, she means scientific facts versus religious values. Everything gets run through that grid. For example, when we state a position on an issue like abortion or bioethics or homosexuality, we intend to assert an objective moral truth important to the health of society. But they think we're merely expressing our subjective bias. Next slide. When we say there's scientific evidence for design in the universe, we intend to stake out a testable truth claim. But they say, uh-oh, the religious right is making a political power grab. The man-made rules of secular culture are, are blurring the witness. We say one thing, they hear something totally different. Brothers and sisters, if we are to walk in the footsteps of the healed beggar, first we must understand and overcome this cultural bias. 
which tries to screen out evidence and put the verdict before the trial. If we don't understand that bias, we will not be heard. Our witness will be perpetually stifled and ignored. So first, we need to recognize and call out the bias of our culture. And finally, as we close, uh, second, we have to choose Jesus over the synagogue. Here's what I mean by that. The Pharisees threatened anyone who would follow Jesus with being thrown out out of the synagogue, out to the margins. And many people caved. You'll notice in the story we read this morning, the parents of the healed beggar get called in to witness, but they claim ignorance. They plead the fifth. They say, we don't know. We don't know how this happened. Ask our son. He's old enough. He can speak for himself. And, and, and the author actually interprets that for us. It says their, their fear of rejection stifled their witness. They cared more about their status in the culture than they did about the kingdom of God. And in the years that lie ahead, we have some really difficult choices to make when it comes to pleasing the culture or or walking in the footsteps of Jesus. The blind beggar is not so conflicted. He makes his stand. He has no money, no connections, no power, no influence, to be thrown out of the community in his day could mean starving to death. He's got nothing. But he also has no fear. No, if you want the truth, I'll tell you the truth. I will give you evidence today that demands a verdict. Evidence that you cannot ignore. And in the end, for telling the truth, he's thrown out. But here's the beauty of the story. If you read the verses that follow, it's only after he's thrown out to the margins that he encounters Jesus again and receives a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. It's only then that he comes to know Jesus as Lord and worships him in his presence. So as we close this morning, the question to ask is this. Would you follow the healed beggar to the margins? This is real stuff. This is difficult stuff. Millions of Christians are walking away from their faith right now in our country. I think it's because of this. I think it's this question. Am I willing to follow Jesus, to follow the healed beggar, to stand on the truth at the expense of my place in the culture? Are you willing to speak truth to power at the risk of being kicked out of the synagogues of our day? I'm not pretending this is easy. 
But the reality is that the church of the future, the church of the next century, will be a community of people that are willing to speak truth to power. Who will accept the rejection of the culture. Who will know and call out and cut through the cultural bias of our day. Only to be pushed to the margins where we will encounter Jesus in a new and deeper way than we ever have before. That's the story of the blind beggar. And if we're willing, that can be our story too. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you now as the author and perfecter of our faith. And I don't think it's too dramatic to say, Lord, that if we live long enough in the culture that we're living in now, sooner or later, we will find ourselves like Peter, trying to stay close to you, trying to be involved in the sham trial, and yet denying you at the same time. So Lord, the church that will survive this cultural storm, I believe, will be churches full of Peters who celebrate your grace, who allow the resurrected Jesus to come to them and restore them. To say, I know that you denied me and denied me again and denied me again. To a teenage girl but I'm here to restore you, to show you grace, to set you back on your feet, and to commission you for what's next. Do you love me? He asked Peter. And again he asked, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Then you're commissioned again. And on this rock, I will build the church of the future. And the powers of hell will not prevail against it. once again be an unstoppable force in the world. Do you love me, Peter? Stand on the truth. Walk with me. Feed my sheep. Go. 
make disciples of all nations in the power of the Spirit. Speak truth to power. Be afraid of no one. Because I am with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Till the day that you stand before me face to face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You ran the race. You did what I asked you to do. Now come and enter my joy. Jesus' name.